welcome everybody. Welcome back to one-on-one um, -on -one with ANZ, um, episode number seven. Uh, very excited, almost in the double digits, going strong. Um, we will go for about an hour tonight. Uh, maybe we push a little past eight, maybe 8.05 or so because of the, the slow ramp at the beginning. Um, but we have another fleet of fantastic questions, um, all contributed from the community, all solicited on Twitter. Um, anybody who has questions, by the way, in the future, we post a, uh, I post a tweet over the weekend uh, before each show uh, saying, please uh, reply to this tweet with suggested questions. And so please feel free uh, to, uh, to, uh, to use that to, uh, to ask questions for Ben and me. Um, and so uh, we like to dive straight into the deep end to start. And a, I would say increasingly hot topic th these last couple of weeks have been, you know, what now looks like at long last uh, light at the end of the tunnel. Um, on COVID vaccinations, uh, you know, rolling out to everybody. California uh, is promising to have vaccinations uh, available to, for everybody by the end of end of the month. Um, and so this is now this is now making very acute this kind of issue that people have been thinking about uh, in in uh, in business world and in startup world for the last you know six nine months, which is basically what does the post the post COVID uh, sort of work landscape look like? Um, how are companies going to be organized? Where are companies going to be based? Where are employees going to live? Uh, how remote will companies uh, choose to go? And there's just like tons of very interesting questions and topics around that. Um, and so we have actually three uh, very good questions on that topic uh, for tonight. So let me start with the first question. Uh, Brian Scott Watson asked, what does return to work uh, look like for your portfolio companies? Um, as an investor, do you care if your companies choose to return to work or continue to be remote first? Um, and let me start by sharing some data um, on this topic. So we actually, uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we did a, an, an organized survey of our portfolio companies, the, the sort of 200 or so companies we work with the most. Um, and uh, I can give uh, folks here sort of a readout of the, the top level results from that survey. So this is, think of this as like a cross-section of the companies we work with, which means it's a cross-section of tech companies, you know, biotech companies, enterprise companies, consumer companies. Um, it doesn't really, we didn't really in the survey include the crypto uh, companies or projects because they have a sort of a different operating model to start with. And so this is kind of, this is, these are all like standard companies, like classically, uh, you know, kind of organized, you know, Delaware C corporations, uh, as opposed to decentralized crypto pr uh, projects. Um, and then, you know, our portfolio includes both, you know, very early stage companies as well as late stage companies and in the middle. So this is a kind of a cross section across company size as well. Um, and so here are the results as of kind of right now. Um, so 92% uh, uh, of companies um, in our portfolio are planning to go either remote first or hybrid. And I thought that was very striking because it means only 8% of companies are planning to have everybody go back to the office full time. And so this, you know, this is a really strong kind of indicator that the ship has sailed, at least to some extent, that the future is going to look very different than the past. 54% um, of companies um, are going either remote first or what we described as likely to require visits only for offsites. Um, and I actually thought this was an even more striking result. Um, you know, if you think about what remote first means is obvious, but if you think about what likely to require visits only for offsites means basically is that that sounds a lot like remote first. Um, and so at least in this survey, 54% of companies said they're going to uh, one or the other of those, those extents. And so that's like a pretty strong signal that maybe half of our portfolio is going remote first, um, you know, the way, the way I interpret it, which again, is like a very, very strong, you know, move in a way that I don't think any of us would have predicted a year ago. 89% um, of companies um, are going to continue to hire remote, remote employees. Um, and I, I think you, you have to conclude that if companies are hiring remote, you know, their, their cultures are going to increasingly tilt towards remote. So that's a very strong embrace of hiring remote employees. 86% um, of companies are going remote or hybrid for board meetings. Um, and this is an interesting one because like, you know, board meetings don't affect most people in most companies, but um, you know, they, they are important meetings for the CEO. Um, and so if the, you know, these are the CEOs responding to the survey. And so 86% of companies are going to either encourage or tolerate um, uh, remote attendance to board meetings, which again, is just like an expression of kind of how, how CEOs are thinking about their, their important meetings. Um, and then 73% of companies believe um, they can be the same or more innovative, partly or fully remote. And so basically, this is saying, right, in the, in the reverse, it's saying that about 27% of companies think they can't be the same or more innovative, right? Um, and maybe they're right, right? Maybe, maybe remote companies are just going to be less innovative. But the majority of companies do believe that they can be the same or more innovative. And so that, that again, is like a much more dramatic result than I would have expected in terms of companies really leaning hard into this. Um, 
so having conveyed that data, Ben, uh, maybe you could give uh, us some thoughts on, on how you interpret all this and where you think this all goes from here. Yeah, so I think one way to think about it is, you know, we just ran this experiment that we would have never been allowed to run, you know, in a million, well, <laughs> in many years, um, which is, okay, let's see how this works if everybody <laughs> is at home and uh, never travels anywhere. And uh, I think that what's happened is we've learned a tremendous amount from the experiment. And, you know, when I look at our companies, I think that we expect that they learn something. You know, some things got better, some things got worse. Um, and But if you learn something, then you're probably going to change your operating model going forward. And I think that's what we're saying. And, you know, of that 8%, I think most of them are very, very small companies um, who just want to get everybody back together. But for the most part, anybody of size is going, look, you know, there were things that were better when we were together, but you know, guess what? We, you know, have people who can be parents and have careers and not feel stretched, be, you know, between those two activities. We have people who used to commute for two hours, you know, each way and go home miserable. And we don't have to do that anymore. We can be more efficient on things that sh we should be efficient on. And so, you know, those learnings, um, as well as Wow, we really missed this from being, you know, together in person. I think constitute, you know, a new design of the companies, and, you know, we we're I would say as investors we're happy with that, and, you know, and we're thinking about it ourselves. And what do we look like when we go back? Um, because look, some things uh, did get better, some things got worse, but for sure things got better. Yeah, I would also add, you know, you do talk to a fair number of people who are like, you know, boy, you know, this has really sucked, right? Like for a lot of people, like this is really dragged out. And 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 so one response to that, you know, for by the way, for lots and lots of reasons, and I'll, I'll come back to that point. <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot that's very bad about COVID. Yes, yes. This has been a very unpleasant experience for many people. And so you 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 get some people who are like, this sucked. We need to get this behind us. I can't wait to get back to the office. Right, I can't wait to get everybody else back to the office. I can't wait to get back to like normal life the way things used to be. So that that's like one response to the last year. Um, you know, the other response to last year, you know, to to Ben to your point is like we ran this like incredible experiment under duress, right? Uh, and and the duress has been like profound, right? And so you know, kids being unable to go to school, you know, therefore meaning parents having to take over like a lot of aspects of like you know daytime childcare and and, and even their you know their kids' education. Um, you know, not being able to see friends and family, not being able to go to dinner, not being able to travel, not being able to go to vacation, not being able to see, you know, sick relatives in the hospital and so forth. Um, and so, it, you know, there you kind of could, could, you can squint, you can kind of see this tipping in the other direction, which is like, if this worked as well as it did with everybody under that, that level of duress, imagine how well this new model can work without everybody under that level of duress. Right. Um, like imagine if people can work from, you know, Ben, to your point, imagine if people can work from home. Imagine if they don't have to commute. Imagine if they can spend a lot more time with their families. Um, imagine, but they can also go out at night and go to sporting game, you know, sporting events and doing all the other things they like to do in their lives with their kids back in school. And like, it might be that like we, it might, it might be the next year is just people discovering actually how great this new way of living could be. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I think that's right. I mean, I, I also think it, you know, <laughs> depending on your, personality type and the size of the company and, you know, other things will, will drive a lot of, you know, how people make these decisions. Um, but there's definitely, you know, kind of great value in learning this entirely other operating model. And so Ben, how would we coach, how would we coach one of our CEOs um, in terms of like, you know, kind of designing the the sort of structure um, of, of, of how the company runs, you know, given, given that they're likely to embrace some level of this change. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's multiple considerations. I just think about how we're thinking about it. So there's multiple considerations. Like one consideration is, um, you know, what do you have to do to attract talent? And I think it is going to be harder to attract talent if you make everybody come into the office every day, because there will be a lot of companies that don't do that. So that's going to be, you know, although th th there's a class of employee who would prefer that. Um, so, you know, that th there's that you know, as something you have to understand. A second thing is, okay, what makes you as a company maximally competitive? You know, what are the advantages of being in the office? What are the advantages of being out of the office? Um, you know, you know, what's more creative, what's more efficient, 
all these kinds of uh, questions. And I think that, um, you know, people come out in different places on that. I think everybody uh, or most people would say that being remote is more efficient and then, you know, being together can be more creative, but, you know, how do you balance that? Um, then you have the consideration of, okay, what is career development look like in my company? And if I have some people in the office and some people remote, will the people who are in the office be the ones who get promoted all the time or how do I mitigate that and these kinds of things? So you've got to design for that. Um, and then, you know, you do have to also kind of uh, design for culture. And uh, if you're in a remote setting, do you have a different toolbox than you do, you know, if you're in person? So you just have to make sure that you make those adjustments. So, the, you know, those are just a few of the, co the considerations that we talk to the portfolio about. And then, look, <laughs> we're worried about, too. Like, so we, I don't want to make it like we figured this all out, but, um, you know, this is what we have to think about. Yep. Um, okay, so let's go straight to question number two, which is related. So um, Brian Dunham asks, um, how will the distribution of workforce in this new world affect rural America? Um, yeah. Will these changes lead to technological advances in areas that we may have forgotten about? You know, ben, what do you think? Yes, see, you know, that's such a great question because, yeah, I advise young people all the time. And one thing that I used to always advise them is, look, live close to where you work and then commute to the community that you want to be part of because that will get you a much more successful career. You know, if you spend all your time in your car, uh, that, that's going to be tough and you just spend more time at work. So you're better off commuting to your fun and, and uh, being proximate to your work. But I think that's advice is no longer valid. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, you're really going to want to live uh, in the community that you want to live in, in the house that you can afford, that you want to be in, and all these things if you're, uh, you know, for distributing the workforce, which I absolutely think that we're going to do. And so then um, you think about, you know, what that means. Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, places where, like, the technology community isn't a community like the it, – it's an odd community. And uh, and there are needs of communities that are far outside in rural areas, you know, probably everything from, you know, <laughs> advances in uh, farming to better software for churches to like all kinds of things that I, I mean, I can't even imagine what they are, but uh, things that, you know, if you don't live in that community, you're never even going to come up with as an entrepreneur. Well, I could tell you, an example, uh, you know, remote education, right, is just kind of the obvious, yeah. like, typically, oh, like, right. You, yeah. right, like, like, I would say, and remote education that actually delivers, like, for real, like, to a large number of kids would be a really big yeah. deal for those communities, right? <laughs> well, I'm familiar with your education experience and <laughs> not remote education in a small town in rural America, Um so, but uh, I'll, I'll just throw one thing out there. You you might want to tell the audience about your uh, history class where you learned about the uh, JFK assassination. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, the good the, yeah. So the good news is yeah. My high school my good news are my high school history four years of high school history. The good news is I know a lot about the JFK assassination. Um, the bad news is I don't know much about anything else um, <laughs> because my yeah. teacher decided to teach us all four years primarily about the JFK assassination out of his own unpublished manuscript. <laughs> I'm sorry, so, it's not funny. <laughs> I can, I can it's crazy. It was, in, in fairness, it was one of the more interesting classes. Yeah. Um, so yeah so, <laughs> that's a long time on a narrow subject. It is a lot. Well, it, it turns it turns out there are a lot of theories, um, on, 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 uh, and I can I can I can uh, I can um, I can speak on them at length. Let's put it that way. He also, yeah, I saw one of them in the Irishman. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, um, yes, he uh, his the, the peak of the class was he. This was you know way pre YouTube and all this stuff. He got a uh, he like somehow it was like smuggled an import of the Zapruder film um, on like thirty five <laughs> millimeter or whatever it was film projector, um, yeah. and I, I think we may have watched that two hundred times. <laughs> um, which which makes a real, makes a real impact on a fourteen year old. Um, okay, so yeah, so I, I would agree with that. Um, now I would say, look, like you know, there's no kind of free lunch here. Like 
you know, rural environments like need to be, you know, more rural environments that want to attract knowledge workers, um, you know, who are either coming out of Silicon Valley and moving, all right, or, you know, people who are going to school in other places, um, or even just, you know, people who they want to stay. Like, you know, there is a real requirement in those communities to think hard, right, about constructing the kinds of both, you know, living and working environments that those kinds of workers are going to find attractive. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, to the original question, like, I think the opportunity is real. Like, I think there's a real opportunity yeah. that you could have sort of what we would view as high end knowledge work kind of, you know, spanning the country in a much more kind of, you know, kind of kind of uh, even way um, than has been the case in the past. But like, it, it'll, it'll have to be like people coming together uh, to make that happen. Yeah. And the, those communities will have to be open to it. And there are things that they'll have to do, um, you know, to, to make that, I think, uh, feasible. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Okay, and then let's go um, uh, to the third question. So Perry asks, um, and I love I love this question. So then I really want to hear from you on this. So because I, I, I my guess is you and I have very different views. Um, so uh, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we'll see. Um, do you think there's any potential for social networks such as Clubhouse slash Slack slash Discord slash subreddits um, to replace the networking value of MBAs or of living in certain cities? Yeah, well, so it's a great question because neither of us have an MBA, and right. I don't think that either of us has ever taken a business class. I know I haven't, so there, there's that. Um, so it's a little hard to know exactly what the MBA network gives you, but um, you know, how, but I think, I think general, let's let's generalize yeah. the question though to just like yeah. the kind of professional networks that people tend to get when they spend five or ten years living in a place like you know historically a place like Silicon Valley. Yeah, so I actually think um, the not only will social networks uh, replace that, um, but I also think um, you can develop a much bigger and more valuable network through social networks than you could in person. Because, like in person, it's a load to. There are a few people who are just amazing at being at every party and going to every dinner and knowing everybody um, in person. Um, and those, those those are a rare breed and it's an amazing talent. Um, but, you know, it's a much lower kind of need for kind of being an extrovert or being a social genius to do it on these, uh, on these social networks. It's just much easier. Um, I, I can't even articulate exactly why, but it's so much easier to engage with a broader number of people, um, you know, one, it takes a lot less time, but, uh, you know, th there's just a lower barrier to communicating electronically and getting your ideas out and so forth. And, you know, what idea do you want to introduce to somebody in person and they can give you a look that makes you know that your idea isn't okay, whereas you can't see them on Clubhouse. So if they don't yep. like what you're saying, you know, you can just keep rolling, which, you know, sometimes learning happens that way. Yeah, so the the way I've been thinking about this, and see what you think of this. The way I've been thinking about this is it's it's the it's the it's the, the big five personality trait of of extroversion. Um, yeah. And so you know, ex, and and the way the personality traits work, right, is that extroversion extroversion to introversion is is the spectrum. It's one of the sort of fundamental five axes of, of sort of human human personality. And then it's distributed uh, on a bell curve, right? And so to your point, like there are a small number of extreme outliers who are like hyper extroverted. And, you know, the, the yeah. canonical case, you know, the extreme case would be like, you know, Bill Clinton, right, who was sort of famous yeah. for, you know, kind of thriving on being around other people and then getting kind of immediately depressed when by himself um, and being, yeah. you know, a hyper networker his whole life. And so you've kind of got that um, or, you know, uh, you know, Ben, we talked recently about our friend Bill Campbell, um, you know, I think yeah. last, last week's show and Bill, I think, was like that also. Um, yeah. So you have a relatively small number of people like that. And then you have a relatively small number of people on the other side of the spectrum who just like, you know, could barely handle being around other people. Um, and yeah. like, you know, overwhelmingly prefer to be alone. And then you, you've yes. got a lot of people. Like, <laughs> and interestingly, th those people ordinarily don't go to the MBA programs or at least not the, no. um, the, the top four programs. No. Yeah. yeah, definitely not. Yeah. They're, they're almost always in like deeply technical professions, um, yeah. you know, where they can, they can work by themselves. Um, and so, or, you know, authors maybe. And then, um, and then there's, you know, there's a lot of people kind of clustered somewhere in the center, but like there's pretty big populations in the distribution curve who are like either, you know, biased towards introversion or biased towards extroversion. And I think you could make a case that the old world, like the old world of business pre-COVID 
you know, of basically people being, you know, kind of co-located in these major cities and having like, you know, offices and meetings and conferences, right, and offsites and the kind of traditional kind of, you know, kind of mechanism, you know, networking events, mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, customer calls, like all the conventional ways that people kind of interacted. Um, you know, the, the, you know, if you're extroverted, like you're totally happy with those. If 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 you're introverted, those have always been a bit of a force fit. Um, and you know, if you're introverted, you might go to those things kind of, you know, because you have to. Um, but right. you know, like the, the key question always, if you want to know how introverted you are, it's like you know, go go to a conference for you know whatever four hours, six hours, eight hours during the day, schmooze, go to all the things, you know, spend time with everybody, and then at the end of that like six hours, are you just desperate to get back to your room so you can be by yourself, or are you like desperate to get to the lounge because you want more time with people? Um, no. and there's a lot of people in, in, in both of those buckets, but like the way business has been structured sort of has tilted heavily in the direction of extroverts. Um, cause the, the assumption so strongly has been that you can't match that with, with online networking. And I, I think that, you know, and it's your point, like, I think that might just simply be wrong. I think it might just have been an artifact of a lack of communication technology and a lack of culture that kind of headed mm -hmm. in that direction. And so I think now you, 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 you may well have, you know, and I don't, I don't know whether it's like the way to think about it is like a different way of doing business or a complementary way of doing business or like, you know, some sort of weird split. Um, but um, there's going to be a totally different way uh, for people to build networks and maintain those networks, I think. And, and I think a lot of people are going to be more open to that. Um, yeah. I'll just give you an example from my own, from my own time in the last year. And, you know, we, I don't know how characteristic we are of anything, you know, but um, you know, my own time is, it's just like what, what I notice is just, I, you know, I spend a lot more time um, over the phone and on Zoom and on chat, particularly the kind of those three, you know, mediums. Um, I, I, I see, a, I, I interact with a lot more people every day for a much shorter uh, amount of time per person. Um, and yeah. so I like, I think, I think I touch like three times the number of people per day and probably on average with about a third of the duration that I would uh, if we were in the office, you know, in, in the old model. Um, right, which I, is... Uh, yeah. Interestingly, right, the people who can do that are the great extrovert uh, networkers uh, in the world. You know, people like Michael Ovitz can interact with everybody for five minutes. You know, his call sheet was amazing. Um, right. But now you can do that, too, <laughs> yeah. even though you're nowhere at his skill level. Yes, no, right, exactly, nor, yeah. nor, nor his extroversion level. So, um, yeah, yeah. so it's like, you know, and like we're, you know, look, like, you know, Ben and I, you know, fundamentally are, you know, like if you just look at the motion of our day, it's a lot of it is, you know, some sort of customer service. You know, a lot of it's responding to inbound from people who need us, you know, for something, um, or need, you know, just need us to help them deal with something. Um, and so, you know, I think the trade, you know, um, to, you know, to be able to touch three times more people and respond to three times more requests, I think has been a good trade. And I, I guess... I don't feel like I've lost a lot. I mean, you know, there are people who I consider myself close to who I haven't seen for a year, and that is weird. Um, but um, it does feel like it's an enhancement more than a loss. Does that does that make sense? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, no, I I I I think so. Um, and it's it is, yeah, it's just amazing. Also, kind of how easy it is to to meet people and um, and just yeah, and keep a running dialogue with them electronically. Yeah, one of the things you hear a lot, one of the forms of pushback I'll get from extroverted people is it's like, no, well, it's, you know, it's not real bonding unless it's in person. But then I, I kind of wonder whether like the model can be like, you know, one bonding event, right? Like a dinner, like at the beginning of a relationship. Yeah. And then I kind of wonder whether there are a lot of at least business relationships that are actually quite productive that can go for years without another quote unquote bonding event if, if, if people are in regular contact. Yeah, and I think like in the days before travel, I think a lot of the business correspondences, you know, via like the post office were yeah. kind of more like that. So I, yeah. I think that's probably right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. People used to, <laughs> the world used to be run yeah. on, on, letter, on letters. Yeah, yeah JP Morgan wrote a lot of letters. A lot of letters. Yeah, it's, it's great. You got, there's all these books of all these, uh, right, collected letters from all these people from like 100 years ago. And those books never get written anymore because. They yeah, there's no more letters. <laughs> put everything in the letters, and, and nobody nobody wants to read a book of somebody else's e emails for some reason. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, they're not as good. Yeah, so yeah, so anyway, back to the original question. Yeah, like it it feels like there's the potential here. Um, uh, you know, especially for kind of the introverted side, uh, it feels like there's potential here for kind of a a sort of a fundamentally you know potentially better way for 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 the kind of networking that happens in business. So we'll we'll be excited. And and of course, there by the way, we should also mention like there are some just fantastic tools coming online. You know, there are a lot of new companies working on this kind of thing. So there's also going to be a lot more software supporting, you know, these new kinds of, uh, of ways of organizing. So 
Uh, that's exciting. Okay, so um, so going off the topic of remote work and just going more generally into you know back into business and tech. So uh, Robbie Lear asks, um, and he references here a book. Ben, I don't know if you've read it, but um, it's a it's a book yeah. called. Uh, oh, yeah, I haven't read it. I read the first chapter because I saw the question, so I kind of know what okay. it's about. Yeah. So it's a, by, again, David Epstein, who's a, a great writer, a kind of science uh, writer. I think he wrote a, a sports science books before this. Um, he, he wrote this book called Range uh, recently that's become quite popular. Um, and so the question is, do you agree with David Epstein's argument that generalists triumph in a specialized world? Um, and at what stage should founders, and I think that I, you, you probably know more than I do at this point, but I think the argument is something like the world getting more complicated actually tilts things more towards generalists just because it's hard for specialists to have the breadth uh to understand yeah. kind of all the factors that go into decisions um something like that mm -hmm. and so um do you do you agree with that argument that generalists triumph in a specialized world and at what stage uh should founders be seeking generalists over specialists as they as they fill out their teams yeah so i think it's a it's a really interesting question um so the the book by the way opens with uh comparing tiger woods and roger federer um, which is an interesting kind of sports analogy where Roger is the generalist and Tiger is the specialist. Um, and I have also just seen the Tiger Woods doc on HBO, which I would highly recommend, um, but I would not recommend the Earl Woods parenting philosophy, which made Tiger the specialist. Um, I think that, you know, that kind of extreme parenting, uh, regardless, I mean, Tiger Woods, of course, uh, you know, went on to be like, at least for the period, he was great. He was greater than anybody who ever played the game. Um, but, you know, it, it had some other consequences. Uh, I think that, you know, the argument that um, Epstein makes is that, like, as a general method, the Roger Federer method is better in, uh, you know, and you don't have to worry about, like, you know, running up the hill before anybody else and getting a start when you're two years old and all these kinds of things. If you get a breadth of knowledge, then, you know, it applies even better to a kind of specialist thing like tennis than, than just doing nothing but playing tennis your whole life. And I, you know, and I, so <laughs> that's the original analogy. And I, and I, I imagine he broadens it out from there. I think in, in business, um, there's part of that that's true. And then there's a little bit of a trap in the question that I think you need to be aware of. So uh, like I think in your individual career, um, that does tend to be great advice. It's much harder to be, I think, Jeff Dean, uh, you know, the greatest programmer in the world than it is to, you know, be somebody who's really great at- oh, Hey Ben, we lost so, the audio. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I got a phone call. Uh, yeah, so it's it's a lot easier to be good at or to, you know, kind of be a generalist and be like a good programmer and then also like really smart about marketing and sales. And then you can, you know, have a really uh, a good career off of that. Um, but if you're a CEO and you're hiring, I think that the, the thing that you don't want to do is say, okay, I'm running an enterprise software company that sells to CFOs. And I can hire somebody who knows that network, who knows that business, who's a specialist, who kind of built an exact company like that to be my head of sales, or I can get some like generally smart person and put them in there and see if they can figure it out. That I think um, is taking it too far. And that seems to be where the question went in that, look, one of the reasons why you bring in executives from outside and just don't promote people from in your company is you're buying knowledge. And when you're hiring certain positions, you're buying uh, knowledge about the market. Um, and, you know, if you buy knowledge about a market that you're not in, you just wasted a point and a half of equity. So, so I guess that's how I would answer it. Yeah, so I would take the question up a level um, to something that I'm, I'm thinking a lot about these days, which is, I've, so I'm sort of coming to believe that there's like a meta question, um, which is sort of a very important and very uncomfortable question, um, because it, it sort of flies in the face of a lot of the egalitarianism um, that's kind of wired into our culture um, these days, you know, and, and, and especially these days. Excuse me, just... And so this this sort of meta question is like a really important question, which is basically who knows um, 
who knows the right thing to do, right? Like who actually knows what the right thing to do is, right? There, there, there is a decision to be made and who is the person who is actually qualified and prepared and capable of making that decision correctly. Um, and then, you know, from there, it's like, okay, what are the attributes of that person, right? For, for, for each such question, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I think, you know, because it, it brings, it, it sort of has this very uncomfortable kind of connotation, which is like, not everybody knows the right thing to do, right? Um, and in fact, <laughs> right? And in fact, for most big questions, most people don't know the right thing to do, right? Which also means, for example, inside a company, right? When there's a big, important strategic question inside a company, for example, most people who work for the company probably don't know the right thing to do, right? Just like the, the number of people who mm -hmm. actually know what to do in a given complex situation, it's just a very, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a disturbingly short list in most cases, right? So, and this is like, yep, you know. That, yeah, that's one of the scary things about running a, a, a big organization. Which is what, Ben? Is that nobody knows what the fuck to do. <laughs> On the hardest decisions, yeah. Right, and you know, people might have lots of opinions. Right, yeah. but like, oh, yeah. who actually who actually in a position is in a position to be able to like draw a conclusion to recommend a course of action, and, and such that like there's like a better than you know better than random chance of getting a positive outcome. And it's just like it's just like really hard. Like it's hard to know what the right thing to do is about when to start a company. It's hard to know what the right thing to do is when to run a company. It's hard to know what the right thing to do is when you're building a product. Like it's just it's really difficult. And so I, I think the way I would answer the the the, the original question is like. It's a, that would basically say it's entirely a function of basically what what is the problem to be solved? Like what what are the what yeah. what is the domain in which somebody has to like actually know the right things to do? Um, and you know there are clearly domains, technical architecture, you know, sort of you know software architecture is an example where like you very clearly want Jeff Dean, to your example, yep. right? Yep. And you and you definitely don't want an athlete. Like you don't want somebody who's been like you know programming for a few years, but also has been like you know a marketing person and also like took a bunch of finance courses. To like be making technical architecture choices like this, you know, it's, it's a domain question, right? On the yeah. other hand, right, you do have like lots of topics, um, you know, for example, you know, maybe like how to organize like a customer support organization, right, or how to think about a go-to-market strategy, or how to think about a product launch, um, where you actually might want that hybrid, right, skill set, right? You might you might yeah. you want you might want the range. Um, yeah. And so, I guess what I would say is like <laughs> grapple. My recommendation would be like basically grapple very directly with like what the actual domain is of 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 of, of the decisions that are going to get made of what to do, um, and then grapple very directly with the question of like okay who actually is going to be qualified to make those decisions like for real. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I think that's a, the the right way to think about it is like what are yeah what do you need them to figure out for you, <laughs> and then hire that. Uh, yeah. And I think it's too broad to go generalist or specialist. I agree with that. Yep. And by the way, like if you really do this, like you're probably going to irritate people around you because there are going to be lots of people around you who think that they should be the person who gets to make all yep. the, you know gets to make the decisions. And one of the things you know, obviously, it, as a leader, that you have to do <laughs> to Ben's point, right, is you have to make sure that the wrong people aren't making the decisions, even when they want to. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. No, for sure. It, it definitely depends on the job. Yep. Okay. Um, and then next question. Um, so Adrak uh, uh, Singh Madan asks, tech has attracted a lot of celebrities. Uh, Ashton Kutcher <laughs> in early early years and now Prince Harry, um, who I believe, uh, what is it? Prince Harry just became an executive at a tech company, if I recall correctly, yeah, um, yeah. at uh, chief impact officer at a software company. Um, I'm trying to maintain, by the way, a totally straight face and facade <sighs> as I say that out loud. Yeah. I think I'm yeah, doing yeah, a great yeah. job. Um, uh, should companies engage with them? Um, are, uh, for, 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 for startups, are celebrities boon or bane? Um, <laughs> yes. Ben, would you, uh, would, would you like to begin or would you like me to? Uh, I, I can start. Um, Go for as, it. If it's okay, I, I'm going to say something unpopular, um, at least by today's standards, because uh, I am from the Martin Luther King Jr. School of Thought on, on this kind of thing, which is you should judge people as individuals, not by the group that they belong to. Um, and I think that goes for race, gender, occupation. And I know that that's no longer in vogue. It's, you know, particularly if you're on social media or talking to the press, if you use a term like tech bro, you'll get unlimited applause um, you'll, and, and great praise. Uh, but if you try those ideas in like the real world or in business, you're guaranteed to lose um, because these groups are super heterogeneous. They're not homogenous at all. And if you just think about 
you know, Ashton Kutcher versus Prince Harry. Th those are two very, very, very different cats. Um, yep. And, you know, look, with celebrities, the common thing that they have is they have ability to reach a lot of people. Um, but even the nature of that reach is really different. So, you know, like Ashton Kutcher doesn't have reach like Prince Harry anymore. Um, but, you know, Prince Harry doesn't really have depth of reach the way like maybe, I don't know, little baby would have the depth of reach where he can get his fans to like wear the clothes he wears or something like that. So they're all very different in terms of that capability. But then, you know, the celebrities, you know, and are working with them, also difference in their, you know, their interest in your business, um, their willingness to do something outside their field. Uh, Ashton Kutcher is obviously super like willing to do those kinds of things yep. and engage. And he's a very smart guy as well. Um, but he's not a big celebrity by kind of any kind of modern measure. Um, and so, you know, I think it depends on like, what is your business? What does it need? Um, can they help? Can they use their influence and, you know, maybe just their, their intelligence and, insight about how to change consumer behavior, which, you know, many celebrities are expert in, um, you know, to help you achieve your goal. And if they can, great. And if they can't, then, you know, just because you want to take a Instagram with them is not a good reason to give them, you know, 5% of your company. So, you know, just, a, it, it depends, I would say. Yep. And then maybe Ben, I could ask uh, on that same topic. Maybe the next kind of most applied version of the of the question, which is, if, if let's say you have a tech startup and you're thinking about a deal, you know, with somebody, you know, you've got, you got you where you think you have like, you know, you think you have something that makes sense, like you have something where like a brand affiliation yeah. or cultural kind of, you know, uh, yeah. you know, kind of cultural synthesis could make sense. Like how, like what, what if, like what, how do you think about like what are the success cases? Like how do the success cases work in terms of like structuring that kind of relationship? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, in our experience, a lot of what's worked and, you know, one of the things that's, you know, worked really well here on Clubhouse is just, um, you know, kind of one, you know, the best scenario is if you've got a platform that will actually help the your celebrity partner extend their reach. And then if you can make them kind of part of the platform as a part owner in it, uh, you know, in some ways so that they're kind of building equity value with you, um, that tends to work really well. And we've got, you know, quite a number of uh, uh, of people in Clubhouse and, you know, big to small, you know, you don't necessarily have to be the biggest star to have an impact. You know, we've got guys who are, you know, like uh, my friend E40 is, a, is an investor in Clubhouse and he's a, you know, he's certainly a local mega hero in Oakland, um, but, you know, he's not nearly as big as Prince Harry, but for Clubhouse, you know, he's been, he's been amazing and, uh, you know, got a lot of things going and he's a very smart guy. So when other celebrities saw him on the platform, they wanted to get on Clubhouse and all that kind of thing. And so, you know, he's able to really benefit through his equity investment and growing his audience. And then, you know, Paul and uh, Rohan were also able to benefit, um, you know, as E40 brought a, a whole, you know, a large and extended group onto the platform in the early days. Yep. And then Ben, I think everybody uh, here should know that it, it is true, right? You are close personal friends with Prince Harry. Is that right? <laughs> well, I have had lunch with Prince Harry. I'm not close personal friends with Prince Harry. He's a very nice person. Um, and I, 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 I wish him well, you know, he's, it is a huge step out of the royal family <laughs> into the uh, kind of regular world. So, uh, you know, that's, I think, a challenge for everybody who tries to do it. I, uh, yes, and I just want everybody to know Ben is in fact a very close personal friend of, of Prince Harry's. They, they talk frequently. And so if, if you, if you <laughs> want to get true. Prince Harry for something, definitely send Ben email. He, he, would, he, he loves to get those requests. Um, yes, not true, but. <laughs> <laughs> Thought I would just make your, 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 your email yeah. inbox more entertaining tomorrow morning. Um, okay. Somewhat more. All right. Much more sober question. Um, so I should have put this one earlier. Um, so Daniel Watson, um, are you worried about the growing distrust in most institutions in America? And I would say this is probably our, our biggest abrupt change from a, a fun topic to a, to, to a serious topic that we probably ever had. Um, so maybe let me, let me, let me start with my view and then Ben, ben see what you think. Um, or see if you think I'm too dark. Um, 
Yeah. So uh, there's actually data on this. And so uh, Gallup uh, has been doing a poll. You know, poll polls have their limitations, but like, that, you know, you, you, with the right questions over long periods of time, you can kind of see trends um, uh, sometimes. And so Gallup does this poll. Um, uh, they've done it since the early 70s, and it's basically um, uh, trust in, in institutions in, in, in America. Um, and they, 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 you know, they go through all the different categories and it's like every, you know, it's like, you know, big business, small business, you know, banks, uh, national government, local government, churches, you know, voluntary organizations, Boy Scouts, you know, the military, the police, right? Um, all these, you know, nonprofits, foundations, um, public schools, all these institutions. Um, and they basically, they basically measure, they, they do an annual kind of survey of, of trust levels. And, and, and basically what you've seen for the last 50 years, basically trust level seems like they peaked somewhere in the early to mid sixties. Um, and then basically starting in the early and then mid seventies, they started basically a systemic decline. Um, and it looks like mm -hmm. basically just like, you know, the curves look like you're kind of falling off a waterfall. Um, yeah. and so almost trust sort of national level trust in almost every major institution in the U S is like down a lot over the last 50 years. Um, the, the press, Congress, the press, the press, the press and Congress are always bottom of the list. They're, they're always uh, competing. They're competing hard, um, yeah. for the, yeah. for that, uh, for that, uh, for the, for the, 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 the president, the president is catching up and, uh, yes. <laughs> Yes, that's right. The executive branch is putting in a good, uh, good effort. Yeah, uh, um, I, I think the CDC gave everybody a run for their money this year. <laughs> they did exactly. The WHO, right behind them. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, look, there's a couple of outliers. Uh, the, the military is the most interesting outlier, which is the military took a huge hit during the Vietnam era. Um, and you know, people may remember, <laughs> uh, older people may remember that, like literally, when uh, American service uh, men were coming back from Vietnam. In the especially in the 1970s, like they would literally be greeted by protesters who would literally spit on them at the airport on their way home. Um, yeah. And so there's been a dramatic turnaround in the, the number for the military, which is much higher now than it was in the 1970s. So that's like a big, but, but that's like a big outlier. Like that's the one that's not like the others. Yeah. Um, and there's a bunch of theories on that. And then actually, interestingly, like business holds up pretty well. Um, and so if you, if you, you know, if you, if you read, if you read one of the ironies, if you, if you read the newspaper, it's like everybody hates business. If you read the Gallup survey, it's like business scores like four or five times higher than the press. Yeah, um, then, the, then, the, then the newspaper complaining about them. <laughs> so one might wonder yeah. exactly what, what's going on there, but, um, but yeah, look, the macro trend is like a collapse of faith in institutions. Um, and, and, mm -hmm. and so like, number one, like, that's just a fact. Number two, I think would be like, okay, like, is it justified? Um, mm -hmm. Right? Is this just like people getting in a foul mood, or is like the, the the collapse of faith actually justified? And I, you know, I think a lot, a lot of people would say it's justified. Um, but yep. you know, you can draw your own conclusions on that. Um, and then the third super interesting question, and this is the one I think about the most, um, which is basically um, it, assume you buy, you know, sort of point one and point two. Um, you know, in other words, like the, you know, respect and trust is falling and that it is like a reflection of reality that they are actually getting worse, um, mm -hmm. or, or that they're, you know, that they're, that they're bad, like that they're actually bad, um, that they, they deserve the numbers they're getting. Then, then the third question is like, okay, have they actually gotten worse? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and like, we're reacting to that or right. Were they always this bad? Um, and we were just in a media environment and in a cultural environment and in a political environment where, you know, either we just didn't realize how bad they were, or we just didn't have the context to kind of wrap our heads around that question. Right. And yeah. so it's like, you know, for example, public schools, were public schools actually better 50 years ago? Right. Or are we just, or, 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 or were they just as bad 50 years ago and we just didn't realize it and now we realize it. <laughs> yeah. Well, right? they, they, they were certainly bad in other ways. I mean, they, they were segregated, <laughs> or no, actually not 50 years ago, yeah, well, 70 years ago, yeah. Some of them were still pretty segregated 50 years ago. Yeah, yeah, some of them were fairly, yeah, yeah. Yep, um, yeah, no, I mean, that's a great example, like, that's, that's yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's an absolutely, absolutely profound, profound point. So, so yeah, so then you've got this question of, like, okay, so how much of this decline, and then you basically say, okay, what's, obviously, what's changed in the media environment, and it's like, well, you know, over the last 50 years, it's, you know, 50 years ago, it's like there were three, you know, TV news channels, you know, three nightly news broadcasts, there were three newspapers, there were three news magazines, that was basically it for media um, that would actually mm -hmm. inform you of, you know, when things got bad, and, you know, obviously, then you went in the 80s to, you know, to cable, uh, you know, cable news and talk radio, and then, of course, the internet and social media sense right and so what so so one theory is like they've always been this bad and we just they're just it's just like we just have like a much higher level of transparency now like we, we now now we really see it 
Um, yeah. and, and honestly, like I go, I go back and forth on that one. Like I, I'm not entirely sure, although as time passes, I'm getting increasingly suspicious that this is a, as they say, this is a camera effect and not an engine effect. Like that this, this is just basically a greater level of knowledge. And, and, and the yeah. counterfactual, like the counterfactual in this would be, you know, what if we had gone through, you know, take your pick, the great depression, world war II, Korea, um, ben, to your point, mm-hmm. segregation. What if what if we had segregated schools? What what if we had had social media in the time in the era of of, of legally segregated schools, right? Yeah. What if we had yeah, had yeah. social media during the ramp up in Vietnam, right? When the press, mm-hmm. you know, just thought that that was just a great idea because you know Kennedy yep. was doing it and everybody yep. loved Kennedy. Like what right, right, what right. if we had had social media when or when was, FDR put Japanese people in in concentration camps? Exactly, exactly, right, exactly. Had people actually known what was happening? Right. Um, yeah. Exactly. For something like that. And had that been and, and not just known it was happening, but like had it in their faces every moment of every day. Right. With just like 24 seven kind of howling coverage, um, you know, yep. would, 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 would perceptions be wildly <laughs> different. So anyway, Ben, what do, you, what do you think of all this? Well, so I'm up to my toes. So I do think that um, the the faith in institutions would have been for sure lower in the old days if there was. Uh, if the media wasn't so controlled, um, or if the information wasn't so controlled, I should say, um, you know, even media side. Uh, so that that I do think is true. Um, however, uh, having said that, I also think that a lot of the institutions have not only degenerated, um, and degenerated merely by the fact that, yeah. you know, like when we look at companies that get big and old, um, they're they tend to be just bad companies. We always like to build new companies. Like the originators of the ideas are gone. Um, you know, people get into these very cushy jobs. They live off the fat of the monopoly. And, you know, they, they just become much worse than they were when they originated. Uh, and I think that's true for government and school systems. And, um, <laughs> well, I think the press is a little bit of a special case, but but I think those things are all, um, you know, they're just true. And and then you add to that that most of our institutions in the United States are, were invented before um, the information age. And so, you know, and none of them have adopted very well to the information age. So the opportunity to build a replacement institution now um, with the new technology is such an amazing opportunity, you know, and it's everything. It's like, okay, we no longer have trust in democracy around voting and there's all these things going on in Georgia and so forth. Well, like that's solvable through technology. It's absolutely solvable through technology. Um, but, you know, nobody's actually even talking about doing that. Um, education, as you said, in rural areas, Man, we could make it so we could have the best. We could have, you know, your guy who taught you JFK for four years in the assassination, or you could have the best history teacher in the world teaching you, you know, in a virtual reality classroom. And so, you know, clearly we could build better institutions now. Um, but, you know, and I think everybody knows it because they know what's possible. They use technology every day, um, they use it to buy groceries and to get stuff and to, you know, meet with their friends. And they're like, and then I go to the institutions and these idiots have me faxing stuff and doing things like that. Yep. Yeah. So, so <laughs> my pointed out the other day, you know, there's all this uh, debate happening right now around voting, you know, voting registration and voting, you know, yeah. ID and all this stuff. And, and you know, there's very important questions, but it's like, look, like yeah. we, we live in a country where, you know, you know, I don't know, Ben, do you know how the DMV validates you? Like if you go in and you apply for a driver's license in 2021, do you know how they validate who you are and where you live? Is it like a paper copy of your social security card or something? I don't know. They they ask you for your utility bill. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like that's hard to forge. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly right, especially in this day and age, right? Um, And so it's just like we're so far from like, yeah, yeah, to your point, like we're so far from the kind of institutions that you would build if you were building from scratch. Like it's just, it's just, it's just, it's such a huge gulf. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 just bananas. Um and you know, like I mean I mean the fact that, you know, on the one hand, like the Democrats are worried about like people not being allowed to vote, you know, based on race or district or this or that, um, which like nobody should even see them. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like trying to, and then you know the Republicans right. are worried about like people are using the mail. <laughs> right. Like we've got like cryptographically like cryptographic signatures that nobody can crack that are protecting a trillion dollars worth of Bitcoin. Right. And like you're using the fucking post office. Like it's just the, the whole thing is so absurd. It's it, it's just it, it's laughable if it wasn't so sad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so to Daniel's yeah. uh, original question, so are you worried about the growing distress? Like, I guess I would say wor worried. It's like, yeah, I, I as first, like it's like the distress is real. Second is like at least yeah. like, yeah, I think depending on how degree it, it, it's largely mirrored. In. Um and then worry, I think worry is a you know. Worry, whether you should be worried about it, like goes to like a, a really fun, you know, like the sort of really big obvious next question, right? Which is it's like, okay, like can you know, as old institutions crumble, can new ones get built, right? Um, and so, if you're a believer that like over time, either the private sector or over time the public sector can build new institutions, you know, to replace the ones that are failing, um, you know, then I then I think you should be quite optimistic, right? Because then it's like, okay, we can actually, you know, we can do to your point, do things better with new technology. And you know yeah. the reinvigoration of energy and, and ambition and, and all the rest of it, um, and so you know where 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 you believe it's possible to create new institutions, I think you should be quite optimistic. Um, you know the, the the clear like area to worry about is the institutions that just simply can't die, right? Like just like that can yeah. basically survive. So they, they can basically survive a catastrophic collapse in capability and credibility, and it doesn't yeah. matter um, because they're so yeah. entrenched in the system that they just they can never be displaced. Yeah, that's that. I think is the biggest worry because all these institutions, like they they, they were built with just dramatically less resources than we have now, and rebuilding them with the new technology would be even easier. Um, and so we can absolutely rebuild them, but you're right, the entrenchment is the is the big worry. Um, okay, let's go to uh, one more question and then our, our closing topic. So, um, Ben, uh, Ben, very future-oriented question, which is fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. and we should do more of these. So, Nick Bishop asks, yeah. um, "What is the one technology that you think will still be with us in 500 years?" And you know, <laughs> to frame that, I'm sure you've thought about yeah. this, but like 500 years, I mean, 500 years <laughs> is a long time. From yeah, a technological a standpoint, time. if you think about yep. just what's happened, you know, we, we basically invented everything we have now in the last 500 years. Um, yep. And and so uh, this this is w way in the future. So uh, Ben, what's your view? So I think um, that it's going to be uh, information science itself, i.e. the technologies and the kind of mathematical breakthroughs from Alan Turing and Claude Shannon and John von Neumann, um, in that I think that breakthrough is as big and long-lasting a set of ideas as like Newtonian physics, which has at least lasted in its usefulness till now. <laughs> um, I don't know if it'll make it 500 years, but uh, but I think that's the one thing that I could point to that's general enough um, that will still be kind of going back to it and building on it in 500 years, but I don't know. <laughs> That's a long time. <laughs> My brain time. melted when I saw that question. Yeah, so uh, so I was going to give this. I was going to give the same answer, um, which is either good or <laughs> oh, bad. Oh, good. Um, Look at that. How about that? And well, we didn't even talk about it. Although that may just be confirmation bias. We may just be, be both wrong. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so, so the thing that the thing that gives me pause in this question is, um, in addition to the time frame, is that there's this effect. There's this thing that happens if you kind of look at historical sort of epochs of technology and, and sort of you know sort of civilizational development, which is basically like whatever is the dominant technology of that time or the dominant science of that era, basically like the thinkers um, and the writers of that era tend to extrapolate that technology out to basically encompass everything, right? Um, and so, and I give you know there's kind of two clear precedents on this that jump immediately to mind. So one is like the industrial revolution like, you know, created this view, right, that basically everything can be mechanized, um, mm -hmm. right? And so, for example, like once you had the assembly line working, then all of a sudden you had people, you know, like the, the education reformers 100 years ago saying, oh, this is great. We can have, like, schools run like their assembly lines, um, yeah. right? Um, and so you kind of have this, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail thing. Um, and, and if you read, it's actually interesting, if you go back and you read, like, even, like, the, the field of sociology got, got developed around that time, um, and if you read it at the time, like they, they were really going for basically uh, like almost a mechanistic model of human behavior. Um, yeah. You know, I, Isaac Asimov in the Foundation Trilogy famously proposed this, that there would be a future science that's called psychohistory, 
which is basically essentially the full modeling of, of human behavior such that you can predict human behavior, which clearly we can't do today. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, definitely not. Right, does not work today. <laughs> well, that, 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 that uh, you know, last week's book, The Weirdest People in the World, also like kind of shows why that's like crazy because depending on your culture, you'll have totally different behavior on right. the same questions, yeah. But people 100 years ago, very, very smart yeah. people 100 years ago thought that they'd be yeah. able to do that. They thought they'd be able to develop yeah. the science of human behavior based on modeling all the interactions. And that's yep. very yep. much, right, it was very much based on, I would say, like a physical, mechanistic, or even Newtonian uh, kind of uh, right, the right, world right. works, right? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. You know, modeling right. it, like, physics of humans, right, sure. Physical system, right, exactly. Um, and then, you know, in the 50s, kind of through the 80s, it was physics that, that did that, right? Um, it was specifically mm -hmm. like theoretical physics and high energy physics and nuclear physics, right? And it was because like the atomic bomb worked um, and then the, um, you know, the nuclear power worked and you always, you had this sort of atomic age and people got, you know, very excited about the atomic age in that period. And physicists were like basically like, you know, the king of the hill um, in those yeah. days. Um, and so what, what, what then ended up happening is you, you had like a lot of other professions. That was when basically a lot of academic disciplines became very mathematical. Um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and I would also say like very theoretical and very formula driven. Um, yeah. and so like, I'll just give you an example. Like if you read economics papers from the 1930s, like they're not yeah. full of calculus. And if you read economics papers from the 1960s, like they're just wall to wall calculus. Right. Uh, right, 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 right. And it was basically, uh, basically physics envy. Um, is yeah. you know, what, what, what people say. Um, Paul, yeah, Paul, yeah. Romer, yeah. Paul Romer, who won the Nobel Prize in economics a while ago, is a very smart guy. He's at Stanford for a long time. And he actually wrote this paper uh, called, uh, called Mathiness. And he basically said mm -hmm. that he, he basically made the claim like economics is basically ruined by trying to make it more like physics. Um, right, because, uh, <laughs> because unlike physics, um, the basis of the mathematics is wrong. <laughs> the underlying right. like uh, predictability of the, you know, how humans work is not known. Yeah, exactly. Like for example, physicists go for universal law. It's a great yeah. point. So physicists right. go for universal laws. Uh, and so yeah. therefore, you know, sort of physics inspired, you know, kind of economists went for things like, well, every human being optimizes for his yeah. own utility kind of perfectly at each point in time. Right. And it's just like, that's not true at all. <laughs> People do yeah. lots of not things for lots of reasons, right. Including things that are very counterproductive. Um, yeah. And so anyway, so so you have so anyway, so whatever the technology is of the given era or the science of the given era kind of balloons out to, to kind of cause people to think, okay, we can universalize this, right? We can we can apply this to everything. Um, and so I guess if Ben, if you and I are wrong about information science being the one that survives, I think it's gonna be because it's our hammer. And so yeah. they're you know, software ah, software, right. Yeah, right. software eats the world, right? Which is yeah. basically like, okay, let's just like encode everything in software um, and let's yeah. like put everything into like ones and zeros. Um, it's kind of working like, though. Yes, <laughs> it, is. it is. It is. It is. And, and you know, look, I, I think, you know, I, I would make the bet that it generally will. Um, yeah. You know, I do wonder, like, I, you know, the counterfactual would just be, okay, it just, at some point it just tops out. Like it's like, you know, more, more degrees yeah. of specificity uh, being applied against the same physical system maybe just doesn't, doesn't get, get you the benefit anymore or something like that. Yeah. And so yeah. that, 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 you know, the, the, and I don't know what that new tech, uh, you know, the most obvious candidate for the replacement technology, I think would be biotech. Mm -hmm. Right, like if, if we got right, like, right, right, right. If we got like sufficiently sophisticated at like engineering biology, you know, you could imagine that potentially swamping. I, you know, you, you could actually, you could imagine that actually eating software. You could imagine that eating information science because you would just like decode everything. You would basically encode everything biologically. Right, um, and it would be more of a quantum model and not a binary model. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah very easily could yeah. be. Um, yeah. You know, or even just like literally a wet model, not a dry model. Like I, you know, I, you know, kind yeah. of speculate. <laughs> You know, what, yep. you know, if if we knew how to grow things that today we have to build, right? Like yeah. that would yeah. be different. Yeah. Um, so that's my best guess at why we might might, might both be right or wrong. Um, and so, okay, I'll let you books. We'll close out with books of the week. So Ben, uh, you've got one, and then I think I've got one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the my book is um, a book called Lenin: The Man, the Dictator, and the Master of Terror by uh, Victor Sebastian, and this is uh, Vladimir uh, Lenin, <laughs> um, not, not, uh, not John Lennon. Uh, and uh, you know, it's just a fantastic book. You know, I, my, uh, you know, I come from a communist family, you know, where uh, my grandparents were Stalinists. Um, so I kind of, I, I knew all the lore of the era and uh, kind of the, the movement and, you know, uh, you know, probably more than most about the Bolshevik revolution, but, you know, this book is, you know, first of all, it's like a novel, um, you know, it, it's so dramatic and it goes through kind of 
this just amazing story of uh, of, of a guy who was, you know, a uh, you know really like a, a journalist um, who kind of took over the country and and put this new model on it and uh, and what exactly happened and you know and how just swift and severe that change was um you know and it and it and then you know it is mirrored in kind of every other communist revolution you know from pol pot to ceausescu to um you know to mao and uh it's just really really um an amazing and interesting story yeah, and by the way, I can I can I've I've read this book also, and I can I can second the motion. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> so what I found when I read this book, it's a really relatively recent biography of Lenin, and and it's, I think it's it's quite, I don't know, as these things go, it struck me as quite clear. Um, it doesn't sh- sugarcoat a lot. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, he doesn't try to rewrite history; he just kind of rolls through it. It's a spooky book, um, but yeah. it, the first half is like almost darkly funny. Um, which is the first half is the story of kind of the rise to power out of obscurity. And Lenin was like this, like weirdly tragic comic kind of semi inept, you know, really marginal fringe figure. Like he was like exiled for like 20 years. Like he would, he was like editing this newspaper that nobody read. They were, they they were reduced to trying to smuggle the newspaper into Russia in literally false bottoms of suitcases, like, you know, suitcase by suitcase. Like, you know, he wasn't like a general right in the military. Yeah, you would never like, think that it would lead to a revolution. Like that, that, that was the, it was just so, you would, even when you knew it was going to happen, you're like, this is never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like implausible. Like not this guy, like certainly yeah. not this guy. And yeah. then, you know, he's just like such a, you know, character. And he's just so like, you know, at least the, the way they're telling the book, like, just such a sour, like negative, like angry, you know, humorless, like guy. And it's, it's, it's almost like this black comedy or something. And he just like has all these like silly issues and just like all these silly views and all this stuff. And then like he, you know, with, you know, with support from some sort of unusual sources, you know, he vectors into St. Petersburg and like overthrows the government and becomes dictator. And it's almost like, it's almost like even knowing that it happened, right. It's, it's like unreal. And, and, yeah. You kind of keep hoping. You've read so many novels where you kind of keep hoping. It's like, oh, he's gonna, you know, I don't know, meet somebody and fall in love, and it's like he's, he's gonna see the error of his ways, yeah. right? And it's gonna like, it's not gonna devolve into disaster. Or he's gonna, fix, you know, it's just like, nope, yeah. none of that. Happens. Yeah, everybody's not actually gonna die. Yeah, yeah, and like, yeah, and like everybody, like, and and then um, the other just like shocking thing in the book that I I, I should have realized but didn't because my, my historical education somewhat thin. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's all it's all just the uh, JFK assassination. <laughs> exactly. Um, is uh, I thought the famines were an artifact of the Stalin era. Um, no. And of course, yeah. there were famous uh, famines in the Stalin era, but it, the, 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 the thing that shocked me most in the book is he takes control uh, of Russia. He immediately implements the program to, quote, liquidate the kulaks. And the kulaks were like quite literally the slightly more productive farmers, peasant farmers. Yeah, the, the farmers with two horses, right? Yeah. Yes, two horses instead of one horse. And so they, they basically go and kill, he basically put, said, puts the word out, says like, look, go kill your neighbor and take his two horses. Um, and so like all of the competent farmers get killed and then the country tips into a disastrous famine immediately, like immediately. And so it's just like, it was catastrophe from jump. Um, and so the fact that, um, and then there's all, yeah, these twists and turns that follow, which I won't go into, but, um, it is quite a sobering story. Um, so the book that I would uh, recommend, uh, which I'm enjoying a great deal. I'm kind of dragging out reading this one because it's so good. Um, it's actually inspired by my, my, my avatar. Um, it's a book called Medici Money, um, and it's by an author named P- Tim Parks, and I think an American who has lived in Italy for a long time, who's a great author. Um, and it's sort of, it's one of these books where it's like nominally a story of the Medici, right, who, who ruled Florence during the Renaissance, and then specifically like their bank, right, which, and, and, and sort of the, the, the flow of money, you know, which basically was like, basically the Medici was a banking family, and then they sort of took political control in Florence, and then they 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 sort of famously funded a lot of the sort of you know scientists. Or, I'm sorry, the artists, you know Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and Botticelli and all these people, and then a lot of the sort of leading thinkers and writers of the time, the poets, uh, and so forth. And then which then led to the you know the, what's now known as the Italian Renaissance. Um, and so nominally, it's like a story of their business, 
Um, but it's actually, it's a lot more than that. It's one of these books where it's like, it's a cultural history, not a business history. Um, and so and it, it basically operates at the intersection of, um, and this is like in the title, it's the, at the intersection of kind of how they ran the business and where the money came from. Um, and then the art that kind of got funded as a con consequence of the patronage, um, you know, art broadly defined, like including like sculpture and architecture and like, you know, poetry and all these other things, as well as actual, you know, sort of paintings and so forth. Um, and then uh, what, he, what he says, metaphysics, um, which basically is, um, it's sort of like the, it was sort of essentially the birth of what we would consider to be sort of modern Western culture. So it's basically like, how do you reconcile, how do you reconcile a society in which you kind of have, for example, both like basically tremendous business success, but also like cultural advance, right? Or how do you uh, have right, a society right. that like basically embraces both like science and creativity? Right. Um, or, or by the way, uh, religion and secularism. Right. Because that, that was also the pivot point where art actually started to become secular uh, and philosophy started to become secular uh, in the West. Um, and so it, it was basically like, it's basically a cultural history. It's basically a cultural history of how what we now know as Western civilization was born and kind of the role that these people played. So, you know, for, for those of us who are, you know, I, I don't think any of us can aspire to be like the Medici necessarily. But, um, you know, for those of us who are either in the business world and inter interested in culture and art, you know, by the way, or vice versa, people interested in cultural and art and want to understand how business intersects. Um, it's a it's a really inspiring story. Yeah, no, that's I, I'm looking forward to reading that one. That it, it, it sounds amazing. And it's, um, you know, a lot of lessons for right now. Yes. Yes, exactly. Right. Right. Well, yeah, it's. It's become impossible for me, actually, like this whole uh, whole NFT phenomenon right now. Like, I can't, like, every time I read about it or hear about it, I just immediately think, like, you know, <laughs> we, it's not the Mona Lisa yet, um, but, yeah. like, it's, this, it's, this, it's, it's the same set of questions. It's, it's this intersection, right, of basically technology, money, business, right, paired with or crossed with culture, art, and creativity. Um, and so it's, it's actually quite, quite, quite relevant. Okay, good. Uh, we're slightly over over time so i think we're good so ben any closing thoughts um no thank you everybody for coming thank you laura and felicia for and paul for uh you know helping us uh introduce the room and um you know hopefully you had a good time good thank you everybody we'll see you next week <laughs>